0: Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government.
1: Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast on our Army's Doctrine and its vision of warfare. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean. Stewardship is a hard topic to pin in place, and rightly so conscious way a profession evolves can highlight successful stewardship or show where a profession begins to break down in that process of growth. So, considering and evolving a recorded body of knowledge is part of that professional stewardship, which basically describes how we approach Army's leadership doctrine. Putting the way we talk about stewardship in the army doctrine and then into practical context and thinking about the future of our leadership doctrine is always a fun topic to discuss. It helps to have leaders who enjoy that challenging discussion as well. Leaders that have led and have been led by others. Leaders that have a genuine passion for stewardship and engaging the Army community, which also includes our Army civilian professionals. Leaders like Lieutenant General Ted Martin, the Commanding General of the Combined Arms Center here for Leavenworth. Colonel retired Mr. Greg Thompson, SES and Deputy Commanding General of the Combined Arms Center, and also the senior-most Army civilian professional here at CAC, and, of course, retired Colonel Mr. Rich Creed, our director here at the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate. Gents, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having us, Nick. It's great to be be here.
1: So, with all of this, a codified body of knowledge and a common lexicon is kind of one of those key components that make a profession truly professional, and it's tough to talk about our Army's role in professional stewardship without referencing the doctrine that covers it, So I'm going to turn this one over to Mr. Creed, sir. As a returning member of the podcast, I was hoping that you might be able to share what, first of all, what is a profession? And secondly, what makes the Army a profession, according to our doctrine especially?
2: Yeah, so thanks, Nikki. We have a publication, one of our capstone publications, called Army Doctrine Publication 622. And it's titled Army Leadership and the Profession. it was published in 2019, and it's a little bit of a departure from how we had done this before. We had two different books before. We used to have a book uh, on called The Army uh, Leadership and then another one called The Profession. Uh, and what we decided to do is combine those two because of the interrelationship between the Army as a profession and then the purpose for which we develop leaders, right? And it's to be uh, stewards of that profession uh, and to further that profession. So what the book says uh, is that a traditional profession shares certain essential characteristics. Uh, First is their full-time occupation. Second is they possess uh, training or education programs relative to the field. Uh, They have their own distinct body of knowledge. In our case, that would be doctrine. But it also goes into things like policies and and procedures, uh, the cultural aspects of of that. special knowledge that's necessary for it to be a profession and they operate within established ethics uh, and then they're self-policing and that last piece is is hugely important and that what is what differentiates the common use of the word professional with a profession, that self-policing piece and that really gets to I think what we'll end up talking about here today is, is stewardship. Um, so since we self-police and we have to live with a by an ethic that has both legal and moral foundations. Uh, You're essentially operating according to a set of moral principles that guide decisions and actions during the practice of our profession. Um, We have a definition of the profession and uh, definitions tend to, to, to evolve over time but the most current one is the Army profession is a trusted vocation of soldiers and Army civilians whose collective expertise uh, is the ethical design, generation, support, and application of land power, serving under civilian authority and entrusted to defend the Constitution and the rights and interests of the American people. And so it represents uh, uh, you know, two distinct communities of practice which are uh, heavily influenced by one another. The first is the profession of arms comprising the soldiers of the regular Army, Army National Guard, and U.S. Army Reserve. Uh, And the second is the Army Civilian Corps, which is composed of Army civilians serving in the Department of the Army. Um, We identify five characteristics that are unique uh, to the Army as a profession. Trust being first and foremost, uh, honorable service, military expertise, stewardship, and then esprit de corps.
1: So you brought it up earlier, stewardship, because that's kind of the next area that I'd, I'd like to start to look open or look into. What is stewardship? And then for the group here, based on your experience, how does that apply to the Army, and how does it apply to Army leaders?
2: Well, I'll hit the the definition, since that's kind of my lane, and then we'll, I think, open it up to the boss and Mr. Thompson. But we define stewardship as leaders take care of the Army profession by applying a mindset that embodies cooperative planning and management of all resources, but especially providing for a strong Army team. Uh, so leaders actively engage in sustaining full military readiness uh, and preventing the loss of effectiveness as far into the future as, as possible. So what does that mean? Well, that means we're always looking ahead and that we have to be adaptable to the world as it is, as well as um, the requirements of the United States of America for its army.
1: Sir, what do you think about stewardship or how we've defined it? Good, bad, indifferent?
3: No, I'm, I'm very comfortable with a definition of uh, stewardship. I think the challenge that we have is in the day to day, you know, here and now that everybody, officers, NCOs, Army civilian professionals have, is uh, dedicating time and energy and focusing the appropriate resources, you know, when it's appropriate to steward the profession. So, kind
2: of this idea of, well, oh. You've got to put it into practice, right? We don't just talk about it. There's not just a list of things off the wall, sir, right? I mean, it's, it's the manifestation of, of stewarding the profession every day that's kind of part and parcel of leader development, maybe.
3: Yeah, and developing leaders.
1: So how does that apply, Mr. Thompson, to the, the idea of the civilians? Because while it is most civilians that I've seen have been former military themselves, when you're talking about stewardship on the civilian side, that's, that's a unique beast in and of itself.
0: Yeah, so uh, it's 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 interesting. I don't think it's uh, that different, except p- perhaps in terms of uh, you know the the uh, oversight of the resourcing some of the some of the kind of the business processes associated with the Army largely fall within the Army career uh, civilian professional kind of uh, cohort in terms of the long term management of certain things, right? And so to me. And uh, I talked to this a couple times when I speak to the uh, Army Management Staff College classes. Uh, you know, uh, c- civilian professionals sometimes uh, in local organizations um, uh, kind of carry the weight of the stewardship of an organizational culture in the long term, right, in support of a commander who comes in and comes out and has a set of priorities, um, and, you know. and. It's back to Rich's earlier comment, this notion of looking forward. You know, the, the continuity that an Army, the cohort in an organization that is civilian employees uh, can bring in terms of uh, how, how we see the mission, how we can anticipate change, how we kind of plan for the resourcing and other things I think is a, is a big part of what
2: uh, civilian professionals bring to, uh, bring to the force. Well, there's another piece, too, with the, the Army, civili- uh, uh, Army civilian professionals, but uh, and it's n- most, not all Army civilian professionals are former active duty Army reservists or, or, or National Guardsmen, but an awful lot of them are. And so that continuation of the soldier for life idea gives you an opportunity to contribute to the profession for a longer period. And I think that's a unique strength of our uh, US Army but you know the whole US Joint Force has a similar model when you talk to our allies and partners they don't have anything close to resembling that and they're kind of jealous sometimes I think of our ability to continue to use the experience accumulated wisdom uh, insights and so forth for beyond a 20 year period or a 10 year period
3: yeah I can't think of how many uh, certificates of service we uh, awarded here uh, the Combined Arms Center for 30, 40, I think uh, Mr. Tuig, Mr. John Tuig uh, was the high water mark of, of, of 50 years, uh, which really, if you look at, you know, your mention of Soldier for Life really kind of struck a chord, a positive chord with me in that um, I, I recall uh, in 2013, what I thought was a, a, a major uh, positive move, if you recall, we started welcoming home uh, Vietnam veterans. I don't know if you remember that, but uh, it—I think it had gone, you know, it had gone unrecognized their service to a to a large degree. And I don't—it was probably the chief staff of the army or the secretary of the army that put the mark down and said, "I want to welcome them home," which kind of struck me as odd at first. Uh, I was out at the National Training Center. We had around 400 uh, Vietnam veterans. Travel from all over uh, Southwest to come uh, and be welcomed home uh, and then they were sharing their stories with us and I think this you know what that did you know kind of in a selfish way as a green suitor I saw the effect that it had on the young soldiers in uh, you know in the 11th armored cavalry regiment and the operations group and the 916th support brigade that this is more than just a job. It kind of—it was something that's kind of, kind of magical. Yeah,
2: you don't realize while you're going through your day to day that you're part of history, and yet, so when you get to meet people who are actually help make the history that you've read about in school or that you've been taught about in the course of your development within the army, it's kind of an awesome thing. I, I've always found that a real powerful thing. And hey, maybe I can be like. This person, you know, I I can be model myself on somebody who was a real hero or who accomplished great things, or just did their duty under difficult conditions.
3: So you know, Greg, you said something interesting. You talked to the uh, Army Management Staff College, and the different uh, various Army civilian professional courses we have here. Uh, Ten times a year, we talk to the pre-command courses, and something we started about uh, fourteen months ago was bring in Center for Military History in very expensive in terms of, uh, you know, the program of instruction, expensive in terms of every 30 minutes is accounted for by the chief staffs uh, of the Army's office. But we we put that wedge in to try to rekindle the fire for battalion and brigade command teams to think about how they're going to wrap their arms around the history of their particular unit and harness all that is good about that. And I think that's Something that we walked away from uh, since nine eleven just based on the you know the uh, pounding schedule uh, that we put these units through now we have a little bit more time and it's I think it's a wise investment
0: I think that's a really important part of our profession and it goes to stewardship,
3: even when three of
0: us were junior lieutenants and you get introduced very early to that idea of service greater than something and you get kind of inculcated into the history of those units that you're a part of, and you, you know what battles they served in in previous conflicts, and it acculturates you very quickly to, uh, you, know, you know, understanding your, your place in the history of the Army, and it and, and, you know, puts a value against it, right? It's really, really important.
1: I will say that anytime, because I'll make a plug for it. Right now we've got CGSE getting ready to start. We do have CMH's program to generate unit historians which can help that process of bringing in both the history of an organization but also help apply it to the current operations and the current environments that units are training in. So Alpha 625 for those of you going to the schoolhouse and thinking about getting a skill identifier in 5X for specifically unit historians and working with CMH. I wanna expand on this discussion because I think sir you brought up a great point about the idea of history tied to training tied to education all of this gets into competency-based leadership and how we define company-based leadership and doctrine and what does what does that look like in practical application from your experiences and from what you've seen out in the world of the army today
2: so in the leadership model it really gets to the competencies piece right so we have attributes and competencies and you all remember General. Perkins used to talk about um, when you when you're being developed in the schoolhouse and at the commissioning sources or um, on the officer side at at least. Spend a lot of time discussing attributes, you know, those kinds of characteristics we want of people, but those are only malleable to a a certain level. But the, the competency piece, once you're out in formations, leading soldiers, particularly during operations when things are tough, he used to talk about, you know at that point when the chips are down, everyone's really concerned that you are competent in the execution of making decisions and leading others and, and, and making tough calls under tough conditions. And he said that the, the one exception to that, the one attribute that they he, he said that his that used to come back to him when I thought about it, that's it, true because I think it's happened to all of us, but that one attribute would be judgment. And he used to talk about how Judgment was the most important attribute that, that your subordinates wanted because that, that was where the basis of trust came from in terms of it's a tough spot. What's the boss going to do? Well, I trust that he's got the or she's got the judgment to, to make the right call. Not that the other competencies aren't important and we list a bunch of them, you know, extending influence and leading others, building trust, leading by example. But all of those things always tend to boil down to just a few factors, I think, in real life.
3: Yeah, I think... Um and man, I am a big uh, General Perkins fan. Uh, Having served under him uh, multiple times, uh, and you know, when I think of the Combined Arms Center, I think of when he was the commanding general of the Combined Arms Center. I was out at National Training Center, and he, he came and talked to us about uh, this. Uh, so you know, I, I think in order to uh, generate that trust in someone's judgment, it has to be demonstrated. Uh, over and over and over. It's not a one and done kind of a deal. So it's not a check the block qualification, um, and that's why you know tough, realistic training that's has a uh, that is professionally evaluated by people that are qualified to evaluate it. Uh, and s- some of, you know it's more difficult in the maneuver world, but I've spent a lot of time in aviation brigades, and I think they do it the best. Uh, you know, the senior instructor pilot will take up a pilot and put them through a series of maneuvers and uh, experiences inside the cockpit. And uh, some of it's rote memorization, uh, you know, uh, what's it called? EPs and limits, emergency procedures and limits. But the rest of it is, you know, that uh, the art, the art, yeah, of, of being able to scan and find a place where you can land if the engine goes out or, you know, if there's some kind of malfunction in the aircraft. And that's developed over time. And uh, you know, I think um, another thing that I think foreign armies are very jealous of is the the training regimen that we put our forces through before we declare them combat ready. And I think that really speaks to our professionalism because I think we're harder on ourselves in many cases. Then we have to be, and I think that's a good thing.
2: Well, we've talked. I mean, so the Army Chief of Staff, people first, winning matters. This, you know, the kind of our uh, our go-to approach to things. uh, Since since he's been Chief of Staff, I've always interpreted the people first piece to being the best way to take care of people is to make sure they're trained for the worst-case scenarios and have the best chance of surviving those. I mean, that's part of stewarding the profession I think it, 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 it's got to be the fundamental basis of stewarding the profession first and foremost I think
3: yeah. well here's the here's the cool part about this job ten times a year the chief of staff of the army and the sergeant major of the army come and they talk to the pre-command course so they talk to every lieutenant colonel command sergeant major colonel uh, that are headed in, into command and in key billets and they always talk about the same thing They're as constant as a northern star they task us to be highly trained physically fit disciplined units that are cohesive teams and then he gives that example you know richard you're talking about what what does he mean when he says highly trained cohesive team it means a platoon attack at night on unfamiliar terrain against an uncooperative enemy and win and if you sit and think about that bar that they set for us it really it puts you on a path of you got to do a lot more than just check the block to get there.
1: When we talked with FM70 team here in this in this conference room for the podcast about a month or so ago, that was one of their discussion points. Was you know with the new ADP70 that will eventually come out, the FM70 that they've published, which is amazing. Um, it's not necessarily about train until you get it right. It's train until you can't get it wrong, and when you brought up the aviation things right? that's extremely poignant to me as an aviation officer that yeah every instructor pilot has always reinforced this idea you train until the rote memorization automatically triggers you you, you won't get it wrong because survivability the occupants in the aircraft and that's thats pretty poignant so when, when I'm thinking about all this stuff together because I, I really do want to ask about how how the philosophy of mission command comes into this and I, I'm going to dig into Mr. Creed just a smidge bit to ask him where do you see the alignment in our mission command doctrine that encourages trust but also in our leadership doctrine that wants to reinforce that idea of upholding standards and balancing trust as well.
2: Yeah so that's a great question and, and one of the things we tried to do when we in back in 2018-2019 when we um, sorted out the mission command doctrine which we really uh, we gave it a good try about ten years ago, but we never were as clear in terms of setting expectations for the profession in terms of what that means by echelon and rank. And so, you know, you'd have people joke when they come to CGSC, and they, someone would get up on stage and talk about mission command, and then they would all have sidebar conversations as, "Oh yeah, they used to mission command the heck out of me <laughs> in my last unit," you know, and it became kind of a, a punching bag. And we needed to sort that out. and um, but while we were doing that, we had to make sure that this approach to Army profession and leadership and then, you know, because it's to what end? The, the profession is, exists for what purpose? We develop leaders for a profession to command and control Army forces during the execution of operations against uncooperative enemies in the dark, uh, you know, wearing our protective masks and, and in an unfamiliar area, you know, the worst, worst case of this and so you needed an approach to command and control and and so we say mission command is the Army's approach to command and control and so it's not negotiable, it is what it is and and that's the standard that empowers subordinate decision making and decentralized execution appropriate to the situation and so that means uh, a lot of things in a different different contexts. There's going to be times where you're going to be very tightly controlled and told exactly what to do. There's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, It may have to do with the level of experience of the subordinates, it may have to do with the type of operation you're conducting, which means it has to be very tightly synchronized. I need people to move at exact times over exact distances and so forth. In other cases, when there's a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity and things are happening that you didn't plan for, then you need people to show initiative and, and you have to have a bias towards that initiative. And and so that all briefs real well, and the doctrines, I think, is very clear on it, but you have to develop people who are capable of, again, applying judgment um, and understanding what's expected of them. And I think that's fundamental to our profession as well, is this expectation management. These are the standards. This is what I expect uh, when we are able to talk continuously, and this is what I expect what we need to do to accomplish the mission when I can't be there to talk to you to give you guidance uh, and, and it's very time-consuming to develop leaders capable of doing that and you and I talked about that sir.
3: well well um, uh, first we should uh, let everybody know that the only reason my wingman Command Sergeant Major Steve Helton, isn't here is because he was called away uh, for a Department of the Army mission or he'd be here and I'd be listening to him tell you this so uh, I thought it was funny, and you said, you know, we talk about mission command, and, and you know, sometimes the audio doesn't match the video. Uh, But what I would say is our, you know, in our profession, the way we've got to set up is there's going to be trust is built on on two things. One, knowing that the uh, fundamentals for that particular profession, and I'll use an infantry platoon. I'm a tanker, but I'll use an infantry platoon. So I know when I look at an infantry platoon, especially since STEP has been in place, you know, select, train, um, educate, and then promote, right? So when you look at a U.S. infantry platoon, just in general terms, uh, three squad leaders, they've all been to uh, basic leader course and they've been to the advanced leader course. They've got, we've got six fire team leaders in that platoon. They've all been to the basic leader course before they get that hard stripe. And then we have a platoon sergeant who's been to, Uh, basic leader course, advanced leader course, and a graduate of the senior leader course. Now, just the professional military education of that, uh, combined with a lieutenant who did BOLIC A, basic officer leader course A, pre-commissioning, and then BOLIC B at, you know, one of the centers of excellence. We've got 11 leaders that have a shared understanding of what each one is supposed to be an expert at. That gives us 11 leaders Eleven bona fide leaders. Our competitors—I'd rather just call them enemies—but I don't want to edit it out. <laughs> Our enemies don't—they uh, don't, don't embrace that. And you can only practice true mission command when you have some semblance of confidence and trust at echelon. And, you know, and this is just—you know—talking to the company commanders out there. Look at all the leadership potential that you have, because we are a professional organization. We're not promoting people uh, you know, because of their family connections. We're promoting people because they're battle-proven, they're proven in professional military education, and then through the various difficult hands-on performance oriented training that's the hallmark of the US Army.
1: And it's a holistic approach. But it, When it comes to civilian education, the, the same thing applies. There are gates and there's education, there's training that's required in the civilian corps that absolutely sets, though people would like to make jokes about bureaucracy, dang, this is an organization that absolutely rose together for one purpose. It's to steward ourselves towards victory.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, um, uh, as we're beginning to implement the, the army people strategy and there's a military and a civilian component to that, separate strategies, You know, the philosophical question, I think, that from a civilian point of view, collectively, we need to ask ourselves is, are we in in the Army, in terms of a member of the Army and the profession itself, or do we work for the Army, right? And uh, getting back to Rich's comment, you know, so many of us are former military who've come over because we want to continue to serve, and I, I think Rich and I are good examples of that, Sometimes it's an easy answer for us, but that's not everybody. Uh, and there's a certain commitment that's required of the profession to be a part of the profession, right? And uh, a lot, a lot of thought and energy going into this next iteration of the the civilian implementation part of Army People Strategy, uh, be released later this year, in terms of how we begin to kind of acculturate that idea into our cohort, right? How how we're gonna revised training, so we, we kind of begin to think the latter, right, and uh, and so it's, it's really important. And if I could, I just, a quick comment to the previous conversation, this notion of mission command I went back to General Perkins, right, when he was introducing this idea doctrinally during his tenure mission command. We were an army that was at war in a fixed geometry, right, uh, and so it was, I think, Cognitively, it was a hard for people to take their doctrine and put it experientially into what they were doing every day. But we think about Lisco and kind of where we're going into this future operating environment, where we know that dispersion is kind of a fundamental component of survivability, and the reliance we're going to have on uh, local leaders, those 11 people, and the uh, kind of the their ability uh, to be innovative on the spot and the trust a commander has to have that that lieutenant or squad leader can do it, right? It's uh, even more important uh, in my opinion.
3: I think I got to speak for the uh, young lieutenants because I used to be one and I made a lot of mistakes. So I think if there's a lieutenant out there listening to this and they're you know in a, in a, in a battalion someplace or a squadron. And they're constantly getting scuffed up. I, I think it's incumbent upon the uh, field grade leadership at the battalion and brigade or regimental level to understand that every, you know, uh, if, if we truly want to have this uh, mission command and we want to be true to our values, everything can't be a 15-6. Everything can't be, uh, you know, a drill down. There was a point during during. Uh, uh, OIF and some units where any time there was a weapon system discharged it generated a 15
2: I'm not exaggerating. So that's an investigation.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, investigation. Army Regulation 156 6 has got a, you know, wide range of investigatory things. All I'm saying is, you know, and also for the generals that are out there too, I'm, I mean, I, I found that the higher I uh, work my way up, you know, to the senior levels, I'm, I'm trying to be more patient when it comes to pulling the trigger on a, an official investigation because it, it's initiative. Uh, clearly, if there's misconduct, you know it's part of our profession. We're going to police yeah. ourselves, but there's a lot of honest mistakes that happen out there, uh, and that's that's the balance that I think the lieutenant colonel and colonel level commanders need to wrap their hands around. I
2: think that point you just made it is hugely powerful because we've had this discussion with the officers that go through the pre command course here um, and we do the, the command assessment program counseling with with those officers and it's always interesting to hear what the scuttlebutt is out there in the force and what people are concerned about and based on what post camper station they came from and where they're going to take command and uh, I wouldn't call the word Concern, but I would call it um, people pay very close attention to the, how trust has to work both ways and it has to come from subordinate uh, seniors at the very highest levels supporting subordinates and giving them a fair shake because investigations are a part and parcel of a profession, like you said, sir. Yeah. We're self policing, and they're, um, and so it works up and it works down. and I think the largest part of it, you know, the the more junior you are, closest to the tip of the spear, we prize physical courage, right? But the moral courage piece can be very challenging sometimes when there's a lot of pressure to get an answer to something, or make a problem go away. And uh, that can be corrosive to the profession, I think, and the stewardship of the profession if we're not, you know, grounded in army values and and giving people a, a fair shake.
3: If you really go off the rails here, no, actually, uh, (laughs) no. I mean, we could, like uh, last year, you know, during the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, we addressed the Commanding General Staff College, and there, you know, you could cut the air with a chainsaw. It was so thick, uh, with uh, uh, you know the different feelings, and uh, at the time, there were quite a few uh, professional uh, publications on. That, we were, that senior leadership military uh, wasn't reporting accurately for 20 years. And, uh, and now we're paying for it. And, that, and I mean, that's what I got from them.
1: Yeah, and to be able to, to feel that and to deal with that, because we, we all have powerful emotions or strong emotions about the experiences of the last 20 years, that takes a certain type of, of professional, honest, authentic leader to say, well, maybe we don't know all the answers, but it's okay, we're going to continue to evolve and grow the profession together and, and assess this as it comes around to us. I think that's to do that's pretty pretty significant. Um, we had a discussion with the Center for Military History about maybe a year ago, in which they were discussing the same thing about how, how do you have senior leaders, like, how do we look to history to be able to understand massive, I don't want to say trauma, but that massive experience that's going on in the formations right now. And how do you, how did they talk about it? How did senior leaders look at it? How did they think about it? And then share that out with the rest of the the leadership in both the Pentagon, but all the way down the ranks to say, you, you're not alone. You didn't deal with this alone. History rhymes. It's okay. This is how professionals look back to history this is how they look forward to the doctrine that they have and this is how they look forward to their future so it's
2: I mean I don't know what any of the solutions are I mean we do probably in a broad sense all kind of have a strong idea what potential solutions would be but I, I, I would tell you that one thing that we have decided to do um, and we talked about this a little bit but let's just take a hard-headed approach and focus not about things we can't control let's look down and in to our own Uh, in our case, doctrine, and say, let's do a review. Let's AAR. What worked? What didn't work? Let's get that stuff right. Let's get our thinking right. And it's not uh, one of those things where you're trying to make anybody, indict anybody's performance or anything else over the course of two very difficult wars. But what you do need to do is take that kind of this hard-headed, just the facts, this is all business kind of approach, leave names out of it, you don't even need to name, you know, places or locations. But just talk about um, what works doesn't work and then codify that in a way to make sure, okay, we're a learning organization. Part of stewarding that profession is to make sure we don't make the same kind of mistakes again. And we can't control everything, but we can certainly control things in terms of how Army forces execute their business, garrison, training, uh, or uh, during real-world operations. And I think that might be a healthy point of departure because I think a lot of the wounds are too fresh to start pointing fingers at everybody.
3: Actually, I think uh, the War College is probably a good place to yes, convene something like that. Down here, we, <laughs> at Command General Staff College, they were angry. I was angry. Uh, but we have to stay focused on what I call the reconnaissance objective uh, here at this level. Uh-huh.
1: So what other challenges are out there? What what else is hitting the OE that's impacting the way that we view stewardship? And then for us, the way we're going to eventually have to write stewardship doctrine and professional doctrine.
2: Well, I've got a hobby horse on, on, on this topic. So when we've been doing a certain kind of operations where we said we're all, we're all conducting counterinsurgency, everybody's doing the same thing. Um, and certain types of units didn't do their primary, you know, Military occupational specialty or branch focus so much as they did what everybody else was doing. Right, we we controlled areas of operation. Uh, everybody was either a mounted infantryman or dismounted infantryman. You know, we were dragoons. You had real infantrymen that could do real infantry. Every the rest of us were trying to be infantrymen, whether you're engineers or artillerymen uh, or, or some mixed composite unit or even a cavalry squadron. Right, but we were all doing the same kinds of jobs. Nothing to, to from our perspective, from a doctrinal perspective, uh, is more important in large-scale combat operations against peer threats who can contest you in all terrains, than to have a very highly developed specific skill sets by MOS by branch, because each of those uh, specialties exists for a reason, and we need each member of the profession, whatever their branch is to be the best in the world at their particular specialty, because the only way you get those combined arms uh, outcomes during the execution of operations at echelon, and that includes using joint capabilities and, and, and other things, is, is that very high level of competence, that specialized competence that you can bring to, to bear it as part of a team effort. and. It's going to take a while. It took us a while to get really good at, at what we were doing before. Everyone had to learn new things. Well, it's going to take a while for us to get back to that. But I think that's got to be job one for us.
3: Yeah, I'm 100% in agreement. Uh, we on paper on paper, we look good because we've got the, you know, the way we assess ourselves. But when you talk about the you know, the repetition the tough, realistic uh, conditions, externally evaluated, and retrained where weakness. We, we've we gone so far afield that we've got a block of leaders right now uh, that have never experienced what it takes to reach what uh, General Perkins had as a brigade commander uh, in the initial invasion of Iraq. That was probably the high water mark of uh, large scale combat operational, combat operations expertise at the core and division level was the high water mark. And there's a gap that started probably 2004 to 2013. If you look back at uh, what we were doing at our combat training centers, always a good bellwether. We switched from counterinsurgency and uh, mission rehearsal exercises to what was initially called a date decisive action training environment. Uh, And then it's now called large-scale combat operations. And then the the opposition force that we faced and, you know, that we, we pit ourselves against at the combat training centers and at home station, it started to swing in 2013. But really, I don't think until probably 2018 did we we start getting more than one echelon, you know, like lieutenants who had done it, then we had, they became captains on their second turn. We just, we have a long way to go still. And then the senior leaders, I mean, the MCTP
2: warfighter exercises for divisions and corps, it's the same thing. I mean, we, we talk about this at ASEPC, that's the Army Strategic Education Program for Commanders at the one and two star level that, that you facilitate here three, four times a year, sir, so, you know. We we have those honest conversations, or we did. You know, we don't have to anymore because everyone understands it. But when we first started doing those in 2017 2018, we kind of had to remind everybody that it, that it takes a certain level of intellectual humility to understand what you know and, and, and don't know. So if you're old enough to remember, hey, we, I used to do WISCO because I was a lieutenant in the 1990s. Okay, that's great. <laughs> 1980s <laughs> but, or 1980s? Yes, sir. 80s. Yeah, <laughs> I started. 80. But that's not the same level of responsibility as being a brigade commander a deputy uh, commanding general uh, a commanding general uh, you know 25 30 years later and so everyone has something that they they need to be able to to learn to get better at those things and and once we realize that none of us got promoted in the 2000s, or even the early teens, 2000s, none of us were promoted based on our proficiency at large-scale combat on yeah. yeah,
3: Rich, you know, I was going to say, it, it, it probably sounded like I was pointing a finger and I'm always reminded that when that one finger's pointing out, there's three pointing back at you. And uh, so I'm, you know, I'm riding that same boat too. Uh, when I did my uh, warfighter exercise in Korea, that was t- uh, 2000, in, in November 2015. The last time I had done a large scale combat operation at the division level, I was the G3 of 4th Infantry Division. That was 2003. So there were 14 years. So, you know, I thought we did okay. And of course, if, you, if you're grading yourself, here's a hint always give yourself an A. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're great, you know, you look in the mirror and you know, say, hey, we did a great job uh but then you know as i reflect back on it oh we were stumbling we we're because we didn't have the reps and sets at echelon everybody was trying their hardest and i think we're going to be we're still going to be on that you know pathway until we get you know a group of sam's planners that have been company commanders at ctcs and platoon leaders at ctcs gone into divisions and then you know they work their way up to be uh, division commanders so it's it's going to take a while back to, and, and same with the non-commissioned officers
0: back to like you said earlier history rhymes right so back in our day we you know, i don't know if it was a doctrinal term or if it was a term of art we had this notion of combined arms teams right and i was a young direct support platoon leader uh, and you know the the mechanized infantry brigade commander would look at me and say greg uh, this is what you bring to this team, I need you to be the best at it that you can be, right? And back to that original notion, and that was the expectation, we all kind of aggregated around this mission, we all knew whose team we were on, uh, and you know, that expectation was there. And as we, and I, I think of that in terms of moving back to divisions as the unit of action, and we're bringing a lot of things out of the brigade combat teams, and. Uh, back up to division, and they're all things that are going to be chopped back into brigades as combined arms teams in the fight, right? And so culturally, I think we just kind of have to get back to that idea. You know, I have to be the best MP, engineer, sustainer, whatever enabler you are that is going to arrive, you know, to that brigade operation, uh, you know. You have to be the most competent you can be at your set of tasks. Uh, you can't hide anymore, right? And so, uh, anyway, I, you know, it does feel like it's circling back around to my experience.
1: That's good, though, I'd, I'd say also, because I know I'm talking to three people in this room and, and several others who are commanders, but this applies to staff as well. You, know, you think of where the CGSC students are gonna go after, after they graduate out of here, where the, the Samsters, how they're going to be utilized in their tours, all of of those individuals it's not just a commander's responsibility, though the commander is central to that process. This involves stewardship for everybody. This involves professional development both on the personal side and on on the leader side, those informal leaders informal leaders that occur on the staff. I think they the staff tends to fall by the wayside a little bit, but they're part of the C two system. They are
2: well and most staff officers when you get up to a certain level have been through the schools that uh, General Martin already mentioned, right, whether they're officers or NCOs. Um, In some cases, they've commanded at companies. They certainly led platoons. Um, And that mission command approach to command and control that is the whole purpose for which we develop leaders for the profession, ultimately, uh, in conflict with the nation's enemies, Uh, it doesn't work without staffs officers and NCOs who are developed, Uh, this professional non-commissioned officer corps that we uh, emphasize, I think, quite a bit now, Um, and then the development of commanders, too. But uh, commanders can't do anything without um, a staff and a non-commissioned officer corps, certainly not the way that the U.S. Army as a profession views uh, how it needs to conduct operations. I mean, I just don't think it's possible.
0: Yeah, I think with the current kind of where these the, the go, and particularly the active duty, Compa 1 Army in terms of in strength. There'll be, there'll be functions within the Army, staffs and other things, c- commands that are going to be more reliant on the civilian component of the Army to execute those, right? We're going to be taking the military out of certain functions by and large uh, in order to retain them where we need them in kind of the close combat force and the other things, right? AMC by and large a civilian organization with military leadership, and you're gonna see more of that. And so this notion of competence and being a part of the Army, not for the, working for the Army, right? Just, it's gonna become more and more important.
3: Um, you know, something I've uh, it was, it's kind of interesting, uh, I really didn't deal with Army civilian professionals for, I don't know, 10, 15 years in the Army. I think I saw a few, or if I did, I didn't, didn't realize. Uh, but you know, uh, we we become an expeditionary army, and what that's done is at our basis camps and stations, it's you know it doesn't make sense to have all you know with a reduction in um, green suitor in uh, strength, uh, which we're seeing right now in spades. But uh, I started as a, a division commander, and then later on working in training and doctrine command, understand the roles that the Army civilian professionals do. And to be honest with you, I think most of them don't, I mean, you know, there are a few that worked their way all the way through a green suitor career and then came on. But the vast majority of Army civilian professionals uh, come on and they enable us to stay focused on the war fighting aspect of what it is that we have to do. Uh, and it, it it's incomprehensible. Uh, that we can do it without army civilians. So I, that's why I was excited when I came here, and saw that we're you know we're putting a lot of uh, effort and energy against developing army civilian professionals the same way we do non-commissioned officers. So we're a couple of years behind. COVID certainly uh, you know uh, hobbled us a little bit on the face to face that we you know really thrive on. Uh, but I think it's the linchpin that's going to enable us to stay expeditionary and uh, it's it's kind of interesting it's developed in that culture
2: right I mean the profession is essentially a culture it's a standalone culture uh, that's informed by the world around it but it exists for a purpose mm-hmm. and so we had to get that the culture right across all three components of the army plus uh, army civilian professionals and um, those serving in uniform still uh, I think the culture thing is, is almost always decisive. And if we can get that right, and it's fundamentally a leadership thing, the responsibility to get right. Um, and I, I think the Army civilian professionals, um, particularly those that have long experience uh, on both sides of the equation, um, are in the best position to, to model what what right looks like and I think the modeling is hugely important
3: you know I think uh, I think I used to think I used to say our secret weapon is the non commissioned officer corps. is that I'm sitting here thinking about it I totally overlooked the other secret weapon which is the army civilian professionals and, and Greg you mentioned army Materiel command so I'm a tanker you know and uh, cavalry so very close association with aviation and we have some, I mean we have a lot of people their whole life is uh, really uh, in depth knowledge of systems, you know, like what you would expect uh, during World War II an ordnance uh, sergeant or officer. We have those Army civilian professionals, and um, I can distinctly remember uh, having a problem uh, with weapon systems downrange and having the Army civilian professionals actually brought forward to analyze what was going on, in this case with our Bradley uh, fighting vehicles, crawling all over them and just bringing, you know, 30, 35 years. They're the the people that were working on our Bradleys were the ones that were there testing it when the very first ones came out in the 70s. Uh, so we were kind of worried we were going to break them. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I mean, uh, the, these little secret weapons uh, that our Army has, it's funny you mentioned that, you know, they're jealous of us, I think. They're jealous of our non-commissioned officer corps. And I especially think that NCOs and other armies are just, you know, whenever they do anything with Americans, they go back and they're just so disappointed with the, the, what they don't get to do. And I think the other secret weapon we have are these Army civilian professionals.
1: So you guys mentioned culture, and I, I know this is its an interesting topic to bring up on the culture side. But um, there has been an emergence and change in our in our younger culture on the inculcation of media and some of those challenges that exist to to leadership and stewardship through media, specifically social media in the information age. There's the age of Mill Twitter. There is TikTok. There is Reddit pages like Army WTF Moments that are shaping the interaction between soldiers and leaders and also, to a certain extent, soldiers and the rest of the environment they work in beyond just the military in uniform. And it's, it's a challenge I'm seeing, but I was, I really, I'm, how often do I get a chance to have folks like you in here to ask, what do you think about that? And should it be covered in doctrine too? Is this a topic that's a gap in doctrine right now?
2: Um, only Yeah, Rich, we're, <laughs> we're, where's that FM um, I'm supposed to be
3: reading on uh, uh, so, uh, so, okay, social so media?
2: Yeah, the awkward <laughs> silence. Um, So one of the things, and and Nikki's actually played a big role in this, in identifying that we did have a gap. And so the the new FM 622 uh, uh, on developing leaders is going to have some material that talks about the role of uh, non-traditional means of of outreach and um, not just developing leaders, but in some ways command and control, right? I mean, there's folks when you talk to people and it's been a long time since i was a company commander but it hasn't been that long since i was in a unit not in a decade but there are ways that 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 people uh, communicate with their subordinates now that we didn't do even 10 years ago that are rather routine Um, and we shouldn't be afraid of that so we should address those things i would just advocate that we need a balance uh, and, and a balanced approach and the reason why you need a balanced approach is just because something's very popular um, or is very easy doesn't always mean it's the most appropriate way to communicate with other people, particularly subordinates, and particularly uh, in the Army profession, that because we are such a um, people-centric organization and everything we do involves motivating other people to do difficult things, ultimately under difficult conditions, there's gotta be a level of human interaction that's part of this stewardship of the profession that is face-to-face, that is hands-on. So it, you use the tools that are available, but you don't skew it in such a way that you lose that true connection between the leaders and the lead. That's only possible through physical presence and interaction uh, at some level. That's my opinion.
3: Yeah, it's a wild west.
1: Twitter is lit. <laughs> What's that? So Twitter is lit, sir. I was sir. going
0: to use the same <laughs> term. It's kind of. <laughs> of uh, yeah. First Amendment of Wild West out there right now,
3: yeah, I and mean, that's, that's okay. okay. So I mean, so okay. I'm am a, a cat. I'm a cavalry at heart. I'm an armor guy, but I'm a cavalry. I'm a cavalry dude, and that's what I've been. So, so from day one, I've had at least two radio nets in my CVC, <laughs> and then as I worked my way up, I had four radio nets and two mics jammed in both sides. Now looking at an FBCB two with flipper messages coming at me. So I'm not saying I can multitask because I miss a lot of that, but uh, I see a lot of the social media as radio nets. So uh, you know, just like you can't swear and cuss on an FM radio net, you probably shouldn't swear, you know, and be disrespectful on a on an official with an official military account. But it is a radio net and there is a lot of chatter going on doesn't mean you have to address everything but um, (laughs) so in the pre-command course I keep I keep coming back to that because it's really how we connect with you know people that are coming from the field that are going back out to the field so these are these are the leaders of the army and uh, there's a lot of them that are afraid of uh, you know engaging on social media and I, I you know, I tell them, hey, it's a radio net. You want to turn it off? You know, you're going to spend all your time talking on the platoon net. But if you're listening to the platoon and company net, you know, the four or five nets and you're a battalion commander, you probably have a pretty good idea about what's going on. You just can't get consumed by it. I think we need some doctrine. I also think we need some, uh, you know, we need some blue book level do's and don'ts Uh, specific to the military and more specifically to the army for our soldiers. This is okay. This is not okay. And not get into the First Amendment. You know, I don't want to get into the First Amendment thing, but we do need to provide them some some guide rails because the enemy, and I didn't say competitors, the enemy is seasoned upon, uh, you know, these social media nets and they're exploiting them. So it's putting our – you know, our profession at risk uh, in, in some instances. So there's a lot of work to be done. But again, you know, I, l- I look at the commanders and I go, when they say they're afraid to get on social media, I go, is that what you're afraid of? You know, yeah. maybe you should meet my ex-wife's lawyer. That's what I'm afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> it, it'd be interesting, interesting to see, see where it sort of goes, it, though, right? It's, it's right, kind
0: right. of in its, it's, <laughs> <kind> of <laughs> in its infancy. But, I mean, this is how a part of the army a generation within the army kind of talks to each other right and it won't look like it does today 10 or 15 years from now when these people are commanders and entering the kind of senior commander ranks but it will certainly be different than what we do today a bad analogy is most of the phone calls i used to get and talk on the phone on i'm doing on ms teams now right and it's just evolving and i think social media will grow into something where uh, you know, uh, we, don't, we don't have doctrine. We, we don't really have a set of rules, as you were saying, on uh, uh, the, kind of the, the right way to communicate in this format right now. But it's coming. It's coming. So, some variation of what we see today is going to be how we do it tomorrow.
3: I'll tell you what I think, too. I think there's going to become a day when there is no way to hide yourself on social media day is coming it's not far off Uh, where you know so your persona is going to be unveiled I I don't have any insider information I just know I mean that's just the way things are going discovery
2: so you were teasing me when we started this this bit about well what's the doctor say but we we have actually in the past talked about uh, and back in 2019 in these books I have stacked up here in front of me, but 622 in particular, um, I think we mentioned in 6.0, um, your communication, and that's what social media is, right? It's a form of communication. You just have got wildly different audiences and much bigger audiences potentially than, than just a phone call. Um, your communication should be informed uh, by your Army values. And so we shouldn't um, certainly in official but you know that line between official and non or unofficial capacity again when you're soldier for life uh and if you're a particularly senior or uh, you're in a as an army civilian professional i'm not uniform anymore so i can say whatever i want well no you shouldn't be saying anything that could reflect poorly on the profession of arms because it degrades trust in the profession and, and to trust in in Department of Defense, writ large, but the, the, our concern is the Army, is probably the most important thing to keep in as a profession, so that we can self-police ourselves.
3: Yeah, so I'm going to jump on that one. Uh, you're you're on you're on the ten ring. So the way I look at it, you know, when I think about social media and I think about you know freedom of speech and, and what all, uh, I go back to what the chief said. The chief and the sergeant major they sit in front of us and they say they want highly trained, physically fit disciplined cohesive teams a cohesive team so when I'm looking at leaders out there you know you got to assume that whatever persona you adopt on social media that is you and you will be discovered and are you building a cohesive team so as a senior leader uh, you know let's go back down to that platoon for that platoon to build a cohesive team what if 50% 50% of that platoon is very liberal, and 50% of that platoon is very conservative. There is, no, there is no need to bring conservative or liberal into the discussion any way, shape, or form in a military unit because it will do nothing to improve cohesion. It will drive a wedge in cohesion. So, putting a, you know, for uh, an officer or senior non commissioned officer to put a, you know, a, a bumper sticker on. Ted Martin's opinion you know saying who you want for president that's divisive in my mind it's divisive and it will not lead to cohesive teams and I, I mean I've been doing this for 39 years back it up four more years my real first command was being uh, the captain of the army swim team 1982 1983 nobody cared who I wanted for president they do care about my swimming opinion they do care about crew selection for the 400 free relay or whatever, you know, things that are directly related to the mission. But all this other extraneous stuff, religion, uh, political opinions, all the third rail issues we're hearing about, I think that's where leaders really need to be careful on social media because they will be unmasked and it will not help cohesion. So keeping that professional edge, I think, is really important.
1: Well, and for everyone. you live the army values, we understand the army values, you espouse the things that are talked about in, in leadership doctrine, but also to a certain extent you embody that idea that you are endeavoring to earn the trust of your soldiers so that way you can go out and do operations as a trained individual, as a trained team. That is, if that is authentically you and that's the way that you are and that's the persona that you have on social media, words and deeds align just like you said, sir, it's, it's the, the video and the audio are both synchronized with each other. It's when a soldier uncovers that, that thing and then shares it on social media and it goes accidentally or non-accidentally viral. That's, I think, where sometimes understanding how that platform that you're using or that platform you work with could be used against you, is. it might be value-added to doctrine.
2: But stewarding the profession requires all of us to be partisans for the profession. Yes. Any other type of partisanship is not acceptable and it should be um, invisible between leaders and led, and, and it should never be a, a cause for discussion. And people, going back to bring General Perkins up again, I'm going to make sure he listens to this so he knows we we're, we're, <laughs> were paying attention when he was around. Um, he used to bring up a really good point um, that's probably appropriate for. Um, you know, the world we live in today as much as it was a few years ago when he mentioned it. He says, everybody always says, you know, army leader is supposed to be apolitical. And he said, that's actually not correct. And he said, because we live in a political world, we, we're part of the executive branch of the United States government, We, you have to understand the political world, right? And, and so you do. But what you can never be is a partisan. So we're non-partisans who live in a political world. And you know, our profession serves a political purpose ultimately. And so, the defense of the United States of America and, and, and the defense of the, uh, the Constitution of the United States. All right, that's as partisan as anything should ever need to be. Everything else should be off limits. And, and again, that's our job, I think, sir, is, is to remind people of those things. Um, and to have those big boy and girl talks, because sometimes people just don't know. They, they're very proud of projecting Everyone wants to share more about themselves and is useful for uh, building that cohesive unit. Well, that notion
0: going back to the 50s of the soldier statesman, right, and generally applies in the writing. It's really applying to general officers, but we're really talking about the profession and how anyone at any rank or position uh, kind kind of acts within that profession, right? It's exactly what General Martin's talking.
1: So there is something in ADP 622 that is discussed, which is counterproductive leadership. Mm -hmm. And I know that it's it's also used by its more fun and colloquial name, toxic leadership. So this is the demonstration of behaviors that violate Mm -hmm. one or more of leader competencies, values, prevent climate that is conducive to mission accomplishment. What is, in your opinion, counterproductive leadership as it's defined, what does that look like when it actually manifests for the profession and how, how have you guys seen it squashed effectively or have you seen it impact organizations? And what would you, what would be your guidance or your, your ideas for some of our, especially the guys coming out of PCC or the teams coming out of PCC right now?
2: Well, first of all, you the, so the doctrine weighs out all our leadership doctrine talks about what counterproductive leadership is and they've got there's a checklist of those things and we don't need to go through them it's like a lot of other things you know it when you when you see it in fact what we just talked about in terms of of some sort of political or other single issue partisanship would be a form of counterproductive leadership uh, within the unit because of its potentially corrosive impact on unit morale cohesion and 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 so forth I've always found that the most important aspect of stewarding our profession when it comes to counterproductive leadership is to have a very fine-tuned radar, getting to your eavesdropping point about listening on multiple nets. Uh, you've got to be attuned and very sensitive to disruptions in the force, right? That that may indicate you have a problem, and then you need to move very quickly to address those things head-on and not let them fester. To me, those. That early warning sensing aspect, which requires a lot of personal engagement, leadership by walking around, uh, eavesdropping, all those different radio nets you talked about, sir. Uh, that that that's uh, that active leadership, that <clears throat> um, active stewardship, requires you to have very good situational awareness. Because that excuse that I didn't know this was going on, that doesn't really do much for anybody.
3: Yeah. Um- Something I've noticed over time that I, uh, whenever there is a separa- uh, extended separation between leaders and lead in, in any echelon, it's not healthy because it, it, it's as if the units are on automatic pilot. And to be honest with you, as a as a captain in Germany in 1986, company commander, I did not have a computer. There was really nothing to keep me in my office except a black phone rotary dial you know that only called other captains who we all like to hang out together anyways and you were either in the motor pool on the gunnery range in a meeting at battalion so i I think we got to find a way to overcome that and break these chains between you know what keeps us away from people like you said rich like I don't want social media to be the primary means where I know what's going on in my company or my battalion or, or in the brigade, but going around and engaging with in substantive uh, conversations with other human beings, it it closes uh, information gaps and it helps build cohesive teams. So, so it's something interesting got from General Funk. So we've been talking about uh, the CG of um, tra- Training and Doctrine Command you know uh, General Perkins uh, but both uh, General Townsend who replaced him and then General Funk are both like, really big on personal face to face interaction and uh, you know it was General Funk that said he wants us in the social media space so that's the. I mean I would not be in social media unless my boss told me to get there and uh, I believe in supporting the chain of command, so that, that pushed us into there. But this uh, face-to-face engagement and leadership uh, solves a lot of problems. So, I can when I look at the deox surveys of all the subordinate COEs, it can almost you know not every time, but in most cases, uh, it can be distilled down to a lack of communication between the leaders and the lead, which generates misunderstandings, you know, both with Army civilian professionals and with the military. And I don't really think that the digital world has helped us out a lot in that respect. I know we're not here to talk about it, but I wish company commanders would slam their computers shut, put their phone in their pocket, and spend a lot more time talking to people because that's where we're going to find out how you doing well actually i'm a no pay due and you know and child uh, there's no child care for my son because everyone's got covid and you know how's my wife gonna or my husband gonna get to the grocery store i mean those little teeny problems explode into big problems i think that's where we're at or
2: are people <clears throat> using their technical manuals to do their preventive maintenance checks and services in the motor pool or are they just telling you they are? Yeah. Right, I mean <clears throat> you can only know certain things by actually going in into the location and watching people do things.
1: And that's also where mentorship starts too. You know, mentorship begins where people interact with each other and you find that hey, there is a chance for me to to ensure that this individual or this group of individuals continues to grow professionally based off of all a myriad of things, yeah, interactions, training, all of it.
2: I think there was something, and I joked about it with Sam Sane, who runs the Center for Army Professional Leadership, but you almost want to start any conversation on this topic with the first sentence being, none of this is easy. Like, developing leaders, stewarding the profession, it's going to require a lot of work, and it probably is it should be in your top one or two things because everything you do should ultimately fulfill that goal. Yeah, And I don't think we do a good job of communicating the expectation that, Hey, you know, this is going to require a lot of time and effort. For yeah, and it doesn't happen <clears throat> naturally,
0: right? There's, there's yeah. got to be some deliberate kind of effort put into how you're going to do it. Right? And, and at it, at regardless of who you are and where
2: you work. Yeah, sure. Well, but it absolutely. also may not be pleasant. Like there's not, it's not going to be sunshine and unicorns every day when we do this. This business I mean there's gonna be some tough conversations yeah
3: you know you mentioned Sam saying in the uh, the uh, the studies they've done and the one that always gets me is uh, like 85% of the force over the last 15 years has said the same exact thing they do not feel like they are being developed given feedback being mentored And this is over and over and over. And so, you know, upon arriving here, uh, when I saw that, the first thing I thought was, wow, I must be the only guy doing it right. (laughs) Then I was thinking, I don't know, maybe I'm not getting it right. Uh, But this, uh, uh, you know, as I work my way around the Centers of Excellence, this really cool part of this job. So sometimes I'm talking to lieutenant colonels. Other times I'm talking to sergeants. Other times I'm talking to you know lieutenants and captains fresh out of the field, and you know eight out of ten captains, when you're talking one on one with them, uh, that you know they don't feel like there's a, a big investment by their leadership and their professional personal development. They'll go a full year and only then find out, you know, that maybe they weren't hitting the the mark. And I just don't recall that when I was a captain. I got a lot of feedback. Like you said, there was a lot of broken unicorns. You know, and it was a horse with a snapped off, whatever that thing's called, unicorn. You know, uh, so between that and what was happening to combat training centers, you know, did you win one out of five? You were really good. <laughs> did you? Are you Q1 on tank gunnery? Are you you know RL1 readiness level one aviator, night vision goggle qualified? It takes a long time to get there, and you get a lot of feedback. I'll go back to this aviation. The aviation community does it better than almost. I can't. I can't say. I would think the medical community would be right up there, but our army aviation is tougher on itself, and I think that's why we have the best aviation in the world
1: without a doubt sir without, without a doubt, doubt. <laughs> we, <laughs> I'm when biased we did but
0: kind of a about. prep conversation for this I was thinking about that this, this topic and I, looking back at 30 years in the army I don't remember a lot of my OER counselings in fact I can't tell you almost anything I got in OER counseling maybe a bad one but yeah. well I never got
3: an OER counseling but I always knew what I was going to get there was no surprises and i don't think that today's young officers can say that i think a lot of young officers based on the castle are going to say i thought i was knocking it out of the park only to find out you know i'm average
0: i do some of the best like mentorship moments though i do remember i remember all of them and they were all on the back end of a humvee at ntc or somewhere else they were all leader-led meeting engagements where I said, here's what you're doing. Some were very positive. Some I was standing at parade rest, right? But, I mean, uh, I remember all of those because those are very powerful moments, and you don't get many with your leader in an assignment, right? But uh, uh, when, they, when those people took the time to kind of say, here's, here's where I think you could be better, I, I can almost remember every
2: single one.
1: The walk in the desert is so powerful. But, but it gets to your
2: point, sir, about setting expectations. And right, so as a member of our army profession, your expectation should be, um, or we should set our expectations with our subordinates. When you and I interact, when we're talking about anything other than sports and what you did last weekend, but even that may be setting a positive example, right, in some way. But um, when we're talking about the job, I'm I'm developing you in one way, shape, or form. The back and forth, the two, the and it may be reinforcing that you're doing a good job. It may be saying, yeah, you, you didn't, not quite getting what we expect, uh, or it may be something more serious than that uh, in in terms of the execution of an operation, and you're in an AR or, or whatever. But um, I sometimes think we just don't do a good job of setting that that expectation. That yeah, you know, we. We're not sitting down and doing quarterly counseling statements, you know. You and me, particularly when you get more senior, right? To uh, your brigade, talking to your battalion commanders, or even battalion commanders talking to company commanders. But every time we interact, I'm coaching you, pal. I mean, that's that's what we're doing. You know, when I tell you to do something different, when I tell you to do something better, when I tell you that this has to get done between now and then, and here's the big picture. Why? I'm developing you. And I just sometimes I think people don't realize that that is actually development. So if you're not doing real well, you know, to get to your expectation, I know this OER might be a little bit sporty. And I know it's sporty or gonna be sporty because I've had a lot of negative interactions with my boss and uh, I I should know at that point that I'm, I need to get a little quicker on the uptake uh, and adapt a little faster to what's expected.
1: So I have a question for because th- that's important, sir. You've, you've often said you cannot build the band of brothers after you go to war. It doesn't happen that way. It's a continuous process that occurs in training. But what happens if you are, or where? what would your advice be for the subordinate who is like, I, I, want, I want to have this conversation with my boss, or you, you, just, you know that that individual is getting overwhelmed by USR is coming and reports are happening and they're dealing with 15-6s or you know, commander's inquiries that person is literally overwhelmed with the job that they're doing and you can see it how do you as a subordinate make that that graceful entrance or you know just shove your knee in the gate to be able to say i need you i need you to help me professionally develop so i can see myself better because it's a it's a partnership thing right i can't just be on the, the commanders and the, the leaders to do this subordinates have to have to ask they have to know what to ask what would you what would you advise them
2: well, I'll start with the leadership by walking around piece. So I'll uh, use the tank company commander. So it's it's like tactics, techniques, and procedures. And so you've got a personal approach to to leadership. So our personal approach, and I think culturally in our branch, sir, this was a pretty normal thing. Um, every morning, um, you generally had first formation out in a motor pool. As soon as the uh, first sergeant let everybody go, you called the lieutenants over and you talked to the lieutenants and said, "This is what we're doing today." Blah, 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 blah get a quick back brief. At the end of the day, you also did a face-to-face with everybody before with your officers before they went home. And the first sergeant did the same thing with the platoon sergeant. Uh, that's your opportunity to, one, uh, <laughs> provide guidance and feedback, but also to solicit. And so when you don't understand something, that's usually where people get into trouble, right? They just don't understand what they're being asked. And uh, for whatever reason, you know that's your chance to, to ask. The boss for for feedback, and it requires a certain amount of uh, of personal courage, I think, to do that. Depending on the personalities involved, but um, once you start that that routine in, in the organization that you just joined, right? Because early on is usually the hardest part to figure out what the expectations are. If you do that early on in whatever organization you join, and you demand some level of feedback from your boss, and, and am I doing this right, boss? Then I think you're off to a good start anyway, sir. So I don't know.
3: Yeah, um, I, well, I, I think I I like the same approach, which is leaders with the lead. As long, the more the leaders are with the lead at all echelons, the more the, that the, the, there's there's gonna be a shared understanding on how well things are going and what things need to be worked on. I mean, no one's gonna sit, or, Well, I have noticed that, but, you know, I wouldn't think that a strong leader would sit and let something unfold in front of them that was, you know, not to their standard and then not engage. But to be honest with you, that is kind of a trait that I've seen a lot of. It's like accepting a lower standard because they're either introverts or they just haven't had a lot of experience engaging people and, you know, bringing them up to a standard. And I, I, I think that model must have changed somewhere. As I frequently say, when I left West Point, they told me, take out and move charge. You know, uh, t- take command and move out. Uh, when, when in doubt, you're in charge. Never walk by a mistake. And I remember, <laughs> this is a good one. So way back when we went from green fatigues, I can't remember what they call OG something, You know, went from green fatigues to the battle dress uniform. So there was a period of time in there where they got rid of the green baseball cap. And this is like ancient history. And there was, uh, you could wear a camouflage cap with the green fatigues that you tucked the pants in. It was the weirdest thing. And the day that happened, I remember I was in the motor pool and I saw a sergeant walking by. A sergeant from another unit walking by. We were we were doing what you said. We, we All the tank commanders, we were you know talking about what we were going to do. The sergeant was walking by. I looked at him. I said, hey, come here. The sergeant walked over, and he said, you know, he saluted. And I was a second lieutenant. He said, yes, sir. And I said, what's up with the camouflaged hat? And he goes, us, oh, it's part of the uniform. I go, yeah, do I look like I just fell off a banana plant, you know, a banana truck? Take that off. I want you to double time back, take that off, and, you know, get your— Get the right hat on. And he said, but, sir. And I said, <laughs> right? Typical bonehead second lieutenant maneuver. And the guy double-timed away. Not five minutes later, my first sergeant pulled up. And <laughs> he was wearing green fatigues with a
1: damn hat. <laughs> and I said, top, has the world turned
3: upside down? And he said, oh, no, sir. An Alarak came out and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, boy, there's a sergeant that has a, a second lieutenant story. But, you know, I was ex- that's exactly how I was trained, you know, You know, I wasn't I I didn't belittle the guy, I didn't demean him, I didn't, you know, I didn't treat him with I treated him with respect, but I wasn't putting up with, you know, the story he was telling me. Honest mistake. But now I think, you know, if we did something like that out here, I think they'd walk by captains and majors and the majors would be afraid to engage. I don't know what it is. They'd text them, they put it they'd put it on WTF moments. Look what I saw. Uh, you know, whenever I see something on WTF Moments, I go, come on, man. What did you do? Did you fix it? This morning, Army Times, the picture of the uh, breakfast meal.
2: Oh, I, I saw. The picture
3: the of the breakfast meal. First off, I think it's a, a hoax. But I, I first thing I said was, if I was a private, I'd go to my sergeant. and go, Sarge, look what they g-, you go, know, sergeant, look what they gave me for breakfast. And that sergeant would just tear in there and go, you give my soldier, you know, food I don't know I mean that's some of the stuff we need to do so that was fist upon by the way but, but
2: this th- this stewardship of the profession though sir it gets in the, the you've heard the line it's it's sometimes it's a laugh line but it's not supposed to be civilian civilization is not inherited civilization is transmitted from generation to generation so that that list of things when you graduate from the military academy that all leaders are supposed to do there's always four or five things you know, being collegial was not on the list um, making everybody feel good wasn't part of being on the list now you, you you make corrections as you said respectfully and so forth but it's about the, the standards enforcement is that self policing aspect of the profession yeah. it, it is
3: stuff. it is a wonderful world when everybody follows the rules that's it is, the is a world, wonderful yeah. world and we should all strive to make everybody follow the rules right, right. But you so, know it's Nikki, you made a face. Go ahead. <laughs> no, it's you, Radio Land can't see Nikki make a face, but I can. <laughs>
0: it's somewhere though you have to introduce this culture of continuous improvement. Leaders led, supervisors, employees. You gotta be able to sit down. You and I have to be able to sit down and say, you know, that man, that did not go well. You own part of this and here's what, right? Or I failed you as a leader and here's how here's how I have to do this. And we have We have to be able to be learning organizations. But the fear of hurting somebody's feelings, in many cases, kind of prohibits that, right? Right. Easy for
3: us to say, but, you know, we're seeing what's happening on B-CAP and and, uh, C-CAP. And, you know, I I don't have the statistics, but I I hope we don't... I hope we don't establish a culture where leaders are, are afraid to, you know, em, em, enforce Army standards, import, you know, em, enforce the rules. In their own name. Yeah, in their, in own, their own name, name. yeah. yeah. No? First yeah. Army. General army. Martin yes. said we got yeah. a blah, blah, blah. Right, right. Yeah. First off, even my dog doesn't care what General Martin said. I can tell you that by now.
1: I would say, because that's exactly when you caught me smiling, that's exactly what I was thinking is, is you know, to do, to do that, you have to be self-reflective, and you actually have to, like, that is a skill set that needs to be taught and mentored and grown in young leaders, so that way when they get to BCAP, the first time that they're, that they're experiencing this, this response of, I have to reflect on myself, it's, it's not when you walk through the door at Fort Knox, it's, it's not when you head off to, to B-Knock, or ANOC it is it is a time period when you continuously stand back and be like whoa did I handle that right was I respectful to the individuals was I respectful to the organization did I do everything that I was supposed to do and am I am I genuinely espousing the army values
2: so I think that's a great point but I think there's a, another point that, that you put in the, into the context right so if I'm a petunulator um or I'm a company commander, so I'm looking at it from battalion, or you know, the next higher organization. This expectation management should also address motivation. And so, what many people are afraid of is they're going to be accused of some ism of some sort, uh, or whether it's in good faith or not. Many of those things are not good faith, but any of them are. But regardless, um, the the leads need to be need to clearly understand that the motivation for me enforcing standards um, making corrections and so forth developing you uh, Is so that you become a better member of the profession? That's just a volunteer force people join here to do good things They, They don't they want to be better They want to make something of themselves and be part of a larger team. So we have to feed that because not only is that the expectation, but that's our duty to do on behalf of the profession And so when I am correcting you, I'm not correcting you because I don't like you. I'm not correcting you because I think you're a problem. I'm correcting you because I want to make you better. And I want to make the team better. And that kind of should be the point of departure for all those types of discussions at at the lowest levels when we start developing leaders, I think.
1: So I have one more question for this group before uh, I'm—unfortunately, I know that, sir, you have to head out the door to go to other engagements. But— I have to ask, especially since seeing CAC sits at the kind of that crossroads of modernization. Um, Over the last few years, the Army has been reflecting and evolving an operational approach. We we moved to address large-scale combat operations with FM Three O in 2017, and we are evolving the idea of multi-domain operations, especially now with our new edition of FM Three O. Because it's all about doctrine; it's the best thing ever. But this places the emphasis back on a division is a unit of action. And it reinvigorates this idea of a profession-wide discussion about tactical echelons, combined arms, um, and this really kind of manifests itself into leadership doctrine as well. When it comes to professional development and stewardship, what sets conditions for a combined arms at the battalion and brigade level and eventually matriculating its way down into, into company operations? What... What would be the things that you see is absolutely crucial to those conditions for stewardship where the rubber meets the road or the trackpad meets the tarmac I, I think I
2: touched a little bit on it earlier but I think it's this level of subject matter expertise and so that each of us that are stewards particularly senior stewards within a branch a specialty uh, an MOS both officer enlisted or in as army civilian professionals and as part of an organization have a responsibility to demand the highest level of, of specific skill competence, and then the, um, the personal attributes, the character side of things associated with the Army values uh, for the execution of those competencies during the course of their duties. And I think that to me has got to underwrite this because this shift towards where the Army's going is as much a cultural shift as it is anything else.
1: So, Mr. Thompson, you because I've heard you mention it before. This idea of, of fighting dispersed, fighting distributed, because that that increases survivability, but it also inherently increases a little bit of risk on the bat, a lot of bit of risk on the battlefield. I'm going to be honest. What, how does that, or how would that influence stewardship overall? What does it impact stewardship? Is it just the same way that we've always developed leaders?
0: Well, the notion of dispersion, you know, you whatever that becomes, right, doctrinally, as we kind of continue to work on that, uh, the first implication is this notion of trust, which is inherent to the profession, right? I, I, as a leader, have to trust that we are gonna disperse during some action, and everybody is competent, capable, of executing these tasks that Rich is talking about. And at some point, we're gonna come back together. And, uh, uh, you know, with, with very little time to kind of kind of reacquaint ourselves with all of this, right? And it may be uh, we disperse and different teams come back together, right. We, we have to get used to the notion of the old term's not appropriate, but it's a reference to that combined arms team idea where you have these very niched capabilities that come together under a commander and execute a set of tasks um, for a period of time and then all the direct support general support kind of things go away and we come back together for a different purpose. Uh, I truly think that's kind of where we're going to have to go when we consider the the speed at which we will be operating and the range at which things will be engaging us right and uh, and the only way we do that well is if we have this notion of the profession, right? What is my role in this larger army experience, uh, and uh, how are my leaders kind of demonstrating to me the value of that, right? It's it's this, the profession is simply a kind of a value proposition, you know, against what I am willing to commit to, you know, as a life career choice, and what's being asked of me, right, and so. I just, Nikki, to get to your answer, I, uh, everything we talked about, I think, is only more important. Uh, you know, and these lieutenants are brigade commanders and battalion commanders. is going to be more important.
3: So, uh, it's been a fun ride in training and doctrine command. And I was uh, in the room when the chief staff of the Army uh, slapped the table and said that the division... Is now the decisive tactical echelon. That was uh, Jim Rainey, uh, now RG3, uh, and General Funk pitched that to the Chief, and you know that was uh, about 20 months after uh, FM 30 uh, 2017 version, so 1920, right around that that time period, uh, and and man, I was so I was so excited because. Uh, you don't have to read the uh, large-scale combat operations gap study. You don't have to get the G2's deep dive on the operational environment to know that our army was out of position. It was built for a different war, uh, and it worked, it worked great. You know, it was built to do something different, but there was all this change going on. So uh, w- there's a lot of change going on. We're, be- we're shooting behind the duck, and we need to change our army, but one thing we don't need to change Is that the bedrock professionalism of the United States Army? And it goes to like what Greg was saying and and, and Rich, too. If you need to be a master of your weapon system, so a tanker needs to tank, a scout needs to be a scout, an artilleryman needs to do art, you know, know all that. But they have to be part of a combined arms team. I mean, you're seeing it in the Ukraine right now. Everybody who gets tribal, who goes, you know anybody who you know r- runs to their comfort zones stays one branch or one specialty is getting annihilated and, and they're relearning the same lessons that we learned a long time ago that before you can be a valued member of the team you need to be an expert in your particular niche of the profession and not, you know i'll go back to aviators nobody wants uh i can only fly during the daytime i need to fly at night low level You know, I need to be able to, you know, in the tank world, we got to get back up to the standard of uh, at night in bad weather, hit a moving target from a moving tank at 2000 meters on the first round every single time. And that makes us able to fight outnumbered and win, which isn't in our lexicon now, but it's, you know, as we move forward into the future, the Army's not getting bigger. It's only getting smaller and the enemy's constantly, you know, modernizing, getting bigger, trying new things out. So again, I go back to, if you're gonna be on this professional team, you need to be a profession professional at your particular niche and you need to be an expert member of the team, a cohesive team. And I think it's incumbent upon the Army leadership officer, NCO, Army civilians, to establish the environment where we grow people that, that are comfortable you know, being on that team. That's how you make a cohesive team.
1: Well, gentlemen, I can't thank you enough for your insights today and all three of you for your continued stewardship of our profession of arms and coming on the podcast to discuss this. In preparing for this episode today, most of my questions emerged from getting reacquainted with some current manuals, specifically ADP-1, the Army, ADP-622, and FM-622, Army Leadership, and ADP-60, Mission Command. As always, those are available for download on the Army's Publishing Directorate website. This topic also enjoys a really deep reservoir of professional discussion, and some unprofessional discussion as well, You don't have to dig too deeply into the hellscape that is military-oriented social media to find yourself wondering where professionalism went. Ignore that stuff, I did. And then I went in search of some really great sources like A Stewardship of the Profession, Using Mission Command as a Mechanism for Subordinate Leadership Development by Reed Russell, which was published in NCO Journal in October 2018. Producing Military Commanders, A Systemic Exploration of the Development Environment, 2010 Sam's Monograph by Francisco Lea, Twitter Will Not Steward the Profession by Theo Lipsky, which was published in the online journal War on the Rocks in July of 2021 and its counterpoint, Why We Tweet, General Officer Use of Social Media to Engage, Influence, and Lead by Mick Ryan, Tammy Smith, and Patrick Donahoe, published in the Strategy Bridge in September of 2020. Army Staff Doctrine Development Towards Mission Command and Decline in Staff Performance, a 2018 ASLSP monograph by David Mayer, And finally, The War for Talent by General Ed Daly, which was published in the January-March 2021 issue of Army Sustainment. To those authors contributing to the stewardship of our profession through writing and speaking engagements, thank you. We'd also like to thank our listeners for joining us today. Our production is coordinated by Mr. Ted Crisco, and our editing and sound is provided by the perfectly professional Captain Wyatt Harper. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe on either Apple or Google Podcasts for new episodes. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at U.S. Army Doctrine for updates from the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, as well as our Doctrine Digest videos, audiobooks, and more importantly, New Doctrine. And while you're at it, make sure you follow the Combined Arms Center on Twitter at USACAC. Finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and this has been Breaking Doctrine. And this is for former Sergeant, now Lieutenant Reed Russell. If you're listening, it really was a great article, and you should keep it up.